Thanks for checking out the Southcrest Church Podcast. We are one church meeting in two locations in South Atlanta. You can find us online at southcrest.church, where you can listen to our past sermons, watch our 4G stories, and learn more about who we are. Do you see what I see? I see a church that for 16 years has loved South Atlanta one relationship at a time. A church that in the past year alone has seen more salvations and baptisms than any other year in its history. I see a church that is committed to making a lasting impact in Coweta and Troop County. A church that has deep relationships in schools and in the community. A church that has trusted God and has followed Him at all cost. But I see more. Do you see what I see? I see a church that is willing to do whatever it takes to share the love of Jesus. A church that is ready for what God has next. I see a church that has established itself in Troop County and is ready for a permanent location. A church that wants to expand throughout South Atlanta. A church that gives out of the overflow of their heart. A church that is the future of the next generation. I see a church that is being the church. I see Southcrest. God has given our church an incredible opportunity to impact His kingdom. Over the next 100 days, we are asking you to join us in our Do You See What I See giving campaign as we move forward with all that God has planned for our church. Good morning. How is everybody? That's good. That's good. Hey, I'm so glad you're here for week two of our series called The Grace Card. Uh, This message, I believe, has the potential to change every single thing that you've ever thought about your Christian life, okay? And if you're here today and you're just kind of checking out faith, you're trying to figure out the whole God thing, man, I'm so glad you're here today because you're going to understand it in a way that you've never understood it before. I want to welcome both of our campuses, LaGrange and Noonan. We are here together live as one church in multiple locations. So let's give each other a big round of applause. Awesome. So we're in week two of this series called The Grace Card. And last week was awesome. If you didn't get a chance to hear the message or watch it, make sure you go back to our app or go online. Make sure you watch the message. We talked about grace being God's unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. The idea that we don't merit it, we don't deserve it, we can't earn it. But man, can we totally receive it in our life. And I said this last week, and and many of you have asked me the question, you know, how's your new watch? Uh, My new watch is great, right? I I shared the illustration about my watch and, and how God, from the beginning of time, because of Jesus, had a replacement plan for our brokenness, and it was called grace. And this idea that I don't walk around talking about my broken watch anymore. In fact, I want to tell you, it's still new. It's still new. In fact, I want to tell you something better. I'm still new. I'm still new. Jesus changed my life April 5th, 1987. The grace of God saved me and I am still brand new. I'm not repaired. I'm not refurbished. I am brand new. And so, yeah, that's kind of where we're starting today. You know, so you think about it. Gosh, how in the world can we ever top that idea that grace has the power to replace Well, I want to tell you this today, I think there's some lies that some of us have believed about our life that today God's going to set us free about. 
In fact, let me say it to you this way. The day we come to Jesus and give him our life, we know the only way we can ever be saved is by grace. We said it last week, Ephesians 2.89, it is by grace through faith that we find salvation. So let me ask you a question. If that's how we find Jesus and that's how we're saved by Jesus, why do we struggle to operate in grace? You ever thought about that? I mean, think about it. The day you gave your life to Christ, you had to totally depend on Jesus Christ for your salvation. And the idea that he was going to apply grace to everything in your life that was screwed up and messed up and that only the grace of God could save you. But have you noticed that we start with grace and then we start moving towards performance? Why is that? Why do we start with grace, but then suddenly we start acting like, hey, God, I got this. I got this. I figured it out. I know you saved me, but I'm going to kind of live in this idea of grace that somehow my performance is still greatly needed in this. And here's what I've learned. In life, when we don't measure up to whatever standard it is, we create performance strategies to try to find our worth through our works. You've created performance strategies. Some of you in here are athletes. And you know that when you don't hit a standard, what do you do? You train harder. You find a better supplement. You find a personal trainer. In the Christian life, we do the same thing. When we don't measure up to God's standard for our life, we don't think we measure up. When we don't know we measure up, we create performance strategies to try to create our worth from our works, but that's not grace. And what happens is we end up gravitating between two ends of the pendulum, and one is self-righteousness, which leads to legalism, and one is self-justification, which leads to a lot of other crazy things in our life. We just kind of accept how broken we are, and we walk around talking about how broken we are, and and we're just self-justified, and over here we're self-righteous. I'm not broken. I'm not messed up. I'm perfect. Watch me. Watch me. Watch me whip. So I'm not going to go there. Watch me. That's what we do. And so we stand on both sides because we don't understand grace frees us from self-justification and self-righteousness. In fact, I want to say this. Grace does something so amazing, it removes that equation to where I can be completely justified with God and I can live in complete righteousness because of Christ without self. There's an amazing book. It's by a guy named Steve McVeigh. He wrote a book called Grace Walk. And listen to what he says. God's purpose is not that we should rededicate ourselves with all its abilities but that we should give up hope in self. I mean, think about it. Our world is addicted to self. We're trying to improve self. We have strategies to make self better. But yet grace frees us from the need of self-performance. It frees us. In fact, if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 4. We're going to go there in just a minute, but as we do, I want to speak this to you. And as you turn in there, I want you to hear what I'm about to say. If we don't learn to operate by grace, we will always struggle and want to operate by our performance. And here's the bad thing about that. Our performance, our performance is this. We don't ever, go to the next one if you would, our performance always speaks to our actions, 
the things that we do, the acts that we do, we attempt to perform for grace. But grace always speaks to our identity. You see, I got a new identity when I got Jesus Christ. Do I still struggle at times? Absolutely. Do I still sin at times? I absolutely do. But I want you to understand the grace of God gave me a new identity and my actions only prove that I am still trying to judge my performance instead of live in the true identity of who I am in Jesus Christ. Let me say it better to you this way. A performance-oriented life speaks to what's dead in us. But a grace-filled life speaks to what's alive in us through Jesus Christ. You say, how do you know that? We talked about it last week, Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. He says this. He says, when you were dead in your transgressions, God made us alive with Christ. So what do we do? When we don't measure up and we live by this uh, uh, performance-oriented life and we continue to fail and fail and fail and fail, we just create better performance or what I call them behavior modification strategies. But we still fail. Let me give it to you this way. How many of you have been out on I-85 and seen the posted speed limit? Yeah, what does this say? 70. How many people drive 70? <laughs> yeah, I know. I've seen you guys. I've seen you guys. Sometime, one, t- one time someone passed me and they texted me, hey, pastor. It's like, I'm glad you know Jesus because you're going to meet him before me. See, when we know what the standard is and we don't measure up, we either justify the standard or we try to find righteousness on our own. And both are wrong. Both lead us to this performance trap. Listen, when you hear something that you know you shouldn't do and someone tells you you shouldn't do it, how many of you know you continue to want to do it? Let me give you an example. Right now, I want everyone to think about chocolate ice cubes. Go. Chocolate ice cubes. Okay. Chocolate ice cubes. Okay. Now, I want everybody to stop thinking about chocolate ice cubes. Do not think about a chocolate ice cube. Whatever you do, you can think about an orange ice cube. You can think about a lemon ice cube, but don't you dare think about a chocolate ice cube. How many of you still thinking about chocolate ice cubes? See, that's our performance. He says, why are you spending your life speaking to what's dead in you, your performance, when you have been made alive in Christ through the grace of God? And see, here's what happens. Apart from grace, we end up playing this game that I want to talk about today. It's called this. It's called the shame game. Now, listen, I have never been a participant on any cool, you know, like Wheel of Fortune or Jeopardy. I'm certainly not smart enough to be on Jeopardy. I've never been on a TV show where, you know, where you got to, listen, I want to tell you though, I am a continual contestant, I used to be, on this game show right here. Can't tell you how many times I have been on this game show. I can't tell you how many times you guys are shaking your head going, yeah, I'm on that game show every day, Sean. I deal with this idea of shame because I never feel like I ever measure up. Ed Welch, Edward Welch actually, he wrote a book called Shame Interrupted. If you deal with shame in your life, you need to go check out this book. I read it about two years ago, read it again last week. It's a phenomenal book, but here's what he says about shame. He says, shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you, leaving you feeling exposed and humiliated. 
Some of you have dealt with shame your whole life and you've never known how to explain it. And here's what you would say. When I was seven years old, somebody did something to me that I had no control over. And I've spent my whole life playing the shame game. Or I was associated with something that was shameful. And so I live in this idea that I've got to outperform my shame. And we think somehow God has this pecking order that somehow if you do everything just the way that you are trying to do it, that God's going to say, hey, I'll get you out of the shame game if you can measure up. But that's not true. Some of you are shameful because of things that you know you did were wrong, but you did them anyway. And you're just like, you know what, I'm just, I'm just shameful. And so we're kind of like, why even try? See, here's the thing about shame. If we don't end the shame game in our life, we end up playing a whole nother game. In fact, let me say it this way. Unresolved shame will always lead to blame. Some of you in this room, you know people in your life, maybe even it's you here today, and you're like saying, you know what? I blame everything and everybody for the way that I am. I, I don't know if you've been on Facebook lately. There's a lot of blame. Where does it come from? It mostly comes from shame that's been undealt with. Because when we feel exposed, when we feel humiliated, what do we do? We turn it around and blame somebody else, or we blame ourselves, or we blame God, right? Unresolved shame will always lead to blame. So we got to end the blame game. But where does the blame game happen? Does it happen in a studio? No, let me tell you where the blame game starts and where it has to end. It happens in your mind. Have you ever had a thought about someone that you thought was mad at you and so you acted to them a certain way and then finally you realized they weren't mad at you at all but you played this whole shame game about the fact that they felt like you rejected or you rejected, they rejected you. You ever been there? Maybe your mind's a lot more sane than mine is but I've gone there before. I create these scenarios in my mind sometimes and I'm like, wait a minute, why am I feeling shame? They don't even know I'm feeling shame, but I'm feeling shame. And it seems like the studio of the shame game is in our mind. Here's why. Because the enemy knows that if he can make us feel a shame in our mind, whether we ever speak it to anybody else, we're still held captive. Here's why we got to end the shame game. You can't afford to entertain a thought in your mind that is not in God's mind about you. Every time you play the shame game, you're entertaining, you're coming into agreement with what Satan says about you versus what God has already said about you through his grace. And so you can't afford to entertain a thought in your mind about you that's not in God's mind about you. Because when you do, not only does the game continue, but something else happens. You see, when you believe a lie, you empower the liar. Some of us have believed lies that Satan has spoken to us in our minds. Remember when you were 16 and you did that? And yeah, I know you're saved and going to heaven, but you're gonna live with the stain. Listen, that's the shame game. And every day that you and I believe the liar, believe the lie, we're empowering the liar. You say, why does Satan have, seem to have so much access in my life? Because you've given him allotment. 
Every time you believe a lie that's not true about what God says about you, you're empowering the liar. And some of you go, whoa, I finally figured it out. I finally know why now the enemy has so much allotment in my life. Because we've given him an access when we believe lies. We come into agreement with lies. In the old days, they would make treaties with foreign countries. When you believe a lie that God doesn't say about you, you're coming into a treaty with the enemy. Hey, I agree. I am a failure. I am shameful. No, 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 no. Not according to the grace of God, you're not. So we've got to end the shame game. And I want to talk about how we do it because it tells us in the word of God. Romans chapter four, starting with verse one. This is Paul speaking. He says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? What's he talking about? He's referring back to chapter three. Last week we said that in, a, in a Ephesians chapter, or excuse me, yeah, Romans chapter three, verse 23 and 24, he says, for all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then he says, and all are justified freely by what? His grace. He said, so how did Abraham, who was kind of like our father, y'all remember Father Abraham, many sons? Okay, that guy. He says, hey, what did Abraham discover about this? He says, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, He had something to boast about, but not before God. Look at verse three. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. Hold on to that thought. Everyone say credited. And we have any accounting majors here? You were an accounting major in college? Okay, it's okay. God will deliver you. Okay, I took like nine weeks of accounting, I think, and, and, and they said, you probably shouldn't do anything in accounting. Okay, it just didn't add up for me, get it? Uh, verse five. <laughs> However, to the one who does not work, but trust God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited. Everybody say credited. It's credited as righteousness. Now, here's what's crazy about that. What Paul tells us there in Romans 4, 1 through 5, literally has the ability to end the shame game in every one of our lives. And that's what we want to unpack today. You see, if you were to ask a lot of people, hey, what do you have to do to go to heaven? Here's what they'd say. You have to do more good things than bad things. Y'all ever been on the seesaw? When I was in third grade, I hated the seesaw because there would always be some kid who was bigger than me and he would jump off and mid, you know what I'm talking about, okay? And I, okay, I hated that. But that's how it feels like with this idea of good works. He says, hey, if, if you wanna go to heaven, you gotta do more good things than bad things. That's the way people would say it. Now, here's the funny thing. We know that's not true, but in our minds, we still play the idea of, hey, that's gotta be true because I met Jesus, I'm saved by grace, and now I'm just gonna hope to get to heaven and get in the place. <laughs> Let me say this. A twisted truth is a bold-faced lie. That's a twisted truth that the enemy wants us to play. I've got to live on this seesaw. If I do enough good, if I do enough bad, the problem with all that is this, God's standard is never good. God's standard is perfect. So how do, how do we ever be good enough to get to heaven? Well, let me ask you this. Anybody here ever broken one of the 10 commandments? Two hands. If I had three hands, I'll put up a leg here, okay? I've broken the 11th commandment. You know what that is? Thou shalt be cool. 
Okay, I've been uncool before in my life. You go, you're an idiot. Yeah, I am. But the truth is this. Listen, I have broken more 10 commandments in my life. Like if there was a 10 commandment breaking contest, I would be in it, right? I might even get a plaque. Every one of us have done things in our life that we know are not perfect. James 2.10 says it this way. For whoever keeps the law, the whole law, and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. That's weird to me. And and here's why it's weird to me. Because what God is saying is this, your idea to try to perform, to measure up to my law, can never be as good as grace in your life. If God's standard's perfect, and none of us ever measure up to it, then how do we ever become perfect? Here's how we do it. We believe in the one who was completely perfect. His name is Jesus Christ. Never was about our performance. It was always about his. How do you know this? Look at Romans 4, 3. Let's go back to the passage. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It doesn't say Abraham worked for God. It doesn't say he attempted his own good works. It says he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So that begs the question, what is righteousness? Now, when I was growing up, I had a car and I said, man, look at my car, it's righteous, okay? And I remember when I met Tracy, I was like, she is a righteous babe, okay? But those are bad 80 terms here. We're not talking about that type of righteousness. Here's what righteousness is. It is right standing with God. Being in right standing with God. Let me ask you a question. How differently would you live your life if you knew that continually you were living in right standing with God? Like every time you dialed up to heaven, God said, yep, you're still in right. Yep, you're still, yep, you're still, yep, still in right. How free would you be in your life if you knew that you could operate in the right standing of God? But to know that, we've got to answer this question. Is a person righteous because they do righteous things? Or does a person do righteous things because they're righteous? Let me say it again. Is a person righteous because they do righteous things? Or do they do righteous things because they're truly righteous? How you answer that question determines how you see and understand and view grace. Because this idea that I've got to perform over and over and over again, eventually, if that's my view of grace, it'll affect how I see God, how I see you, and how I see myself. That's why we got to end the shame game. You see, a righteous person can do unrighteous things, and an unrighteous person can do righteous things. Let me give you an example. When Kyle was eight, we were out playing golf at this par three course and, and there was these apartment complexes that surrounded the course and it was on like hole 12 of 18. And, and I'll never forget, it was getting dark and I was just trying to get him done and we were trying to get off the course and I teed off and my ball sliced like it always does. And um, I heard it hit the cart path and then I heard it break through a window. And Kyle looks at me and he says, dad, you broke a window. 
And I said, no, I didn't. (laughs) Son, that hearing test they gave you at school. (laughs) We went on. He said, dad, I really think you broke that window. No, 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 we didn't. I think think mom's calling us. (laughs) I think we got to get home. I literally lied to my own son. Why? Because I didn't want to face up to what I had done. Listen, you can be unrighteous and do righteous things, and you can be righteous and do unrighteous things. The issue is not that. The issue is your position. Not your performance. In fact, let me say it this way. I am righteous because of my position, not my performance. That's our problem. We're still trusting in our performance. So that's the the next question we got to ask is this. Can I earn righteousness? Can I earn righteousness? Verse 4 of Romans 4. Listen to what it says. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. What is he saying? He's saying if we could have God's righteousness, have a right standing with God from our works, then we would work and God would owe us a what? A wage. Talking about Abraham here, he said, Abraham would have worked and God would have owed him something. But he uses that word again, credited. In some translations, it's the word accounted to him. And it means a a set of records of debits and credits like this and that and this and that. And so what we learn from that is this. We can't earn righteousness, but we can have righteousness. So let me explain it to you this way. I I saw this illustration. I want to help you guys understand this. This is what our life looked like before Christ, okay? This is my life, your life, all of our lives before Christ. This is a person who does a lot of bad things, okay? This is a person who does a lot of good things, and this is a person who is perfect, in fact, I'm going to only, I'm going to go ahead and say, fill in the blank here. There's only one perfect person. His name was Jesus, right? And so um, here's a bad person. Here's a good person. And I'm going to say this because I didn't come to Christ till I was 17. So I'm going to kind of throw me into this loop a little bit here because I know me. Okay. And I need a person who's grown up in church their whole life. Like you were born on a pew. Like, like instead of singing lullabies, you, your mom sang, I fly away. Okay. Somebody, just anybody. Yeah, what's your name? What? I can't hear you. Dawn. All right. So here's Dawn. Dawn was really, really good. She grew up in church. She did a lot of good things. But so here's me. Okay, here's my life. So this, this S equals sin here. So I sinned. In fact, I sinned a whole lot when I was growing up. I sinned. There was that party that one night that I went to. It was, yeah, that was bad. And I sinned and I kept sinning and, and I sinned because I was a sinner and I kept sinning and was doing all these things. And, and I even kicked my neighbor's cat one time. Just want to throw that out there. Um, but then every now and then I would do something righteous, 
So I would say something good to someone like, hey, you look really nice today. Or I would, do, I would open a door for somebody or I would do something that I thought was righteous. So I had all this sin, but every now and then I had some righteousness going on, okay? But let's talk about Dawn real quick. She grew up in church and so she didn't have a whole lot that God needed to deliver her from. Um, you know, maybe God delivered her from the hymn book. I'm not sure. But um, she had all these righteous things that she did in her life. And she probably wouldn't say, you know, I never kicked a cat. I never thought about kicking a cat. Um, I just did a lot of righteous things. But the truth is this, no matter how many righteous things she did, she also every now and then, she did some sinful things. And so, you know, she had a sin here. One time she, just a little sin. And then (laughs) sin here. Dawn's a pretty good person, right? But then there's Jesus. Jesus was completely righteous. All of God's righteousness was in Jesus. Every bit of God's righteousness was in him. The perfect one. How do we ever measure up to that standard? How do we ever get there? This is what my life, you're like, this is what our account looked like before Christ. The only problem with Dawn was this, even though she had a lot of R's, Isaiah 64, six says this, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. So see, we can look over here and we can say, well, Sean tried to be righteous, but he was just a sinner. So like, you know, maybe, maybe S equals stupid. Cause have you ever sinned real stupid before? <laughs> yeah, I've done that before. But, but over here, Dawn, her sins and even her righteousness, the Bible says, her attempts to be righteous are rags apart from Jesus's righteousness. So how in the world did we ever get out of that? That sounds to me like a big fat performance trap. Here's how we we got out of that, okay? I wanna show this to you real quick. All right, this is me, this is Dawn. And remember, these are our accounts. My sin and attempts to be righteous were still sinful. Don's righteousness plus the little sin was still sinful. You and I were all born into this. Jesus, completely righteous. But here's what happened. Here's what changed and here's what ends the shame game. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become, everyone say become, the righteousness of God. Not might become, become. Not become when I enter heaven become and get in Jesus' presence become, but at the point that I trust Jesus, I become. So here's what's crazy about this. The Bible says God took him who knew no sin and he took all of the righteousness out of Jesus's account and he put in Jesus's account all the sin of all humanity. And when he did that, it forever wiped the sin from all of these accounts. And you're going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. that, That can't be true. Now listen, when Jesus paid for the sin, he paid for all sin, past, present, and future for all humanity. So here's the part that's gonna totally blow up your performance strategy. People don't die and go to hell because of sin. 
People die and go to hell because of unbelief. And here's why I know that. Jesus paid for all the sin of the world. He put it all, God put it all on himself. And even though Jesus paid for all the sin in the world, there is still something in me and Don and you that is empty. We don't have the righteousness of Christ until this verse. God made him who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. On April 5th, 1987, I knelt beside of my bed and I asked Jesus Christ to save me and all of his righteousness that was in his account got put in my account. The day that Dawn gave her life to Jesus Christ, all of the righteousness of Jesus was put into her account. How about you? Are you still trying to perform? Still trying to measure up? Still trying to hope that God's gonna grade on a curve? Because his standard was perfection. How, and I, how do you and I ever reach the righteousness of God? Through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. I love this. Before verse 21, I don't even have the scripture, but it says this in verse 19. God was reconciling the world to himself through Jesus, not counting men's sins against them. But the day I believed, the day I trusted, the day I gave my life to Jesus, all of that righteousness was put into my account. And you know what that transaction's called? Grace. Grace. Haris. Grace. Because of God's grace, he could take it out of Jesus' account, put all my sin on him, and put it into my account. Because of grace. Here's what we do to end the shame game. I know this sounds weird, but I'm gonna unpack it. We believe God. We've been talking about Abraham. Abraham was known as a man who had righteousness because he believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. The only problem is, and let me just expose this to you today, Abraham was no saint. In fact, I'm gonna throw out a term that will probably mess some of your theology up. He was a redneck. <gasps> How dare you call Abraham a redneck? No, he was, let me, let me explain. Before Abraham really knew who God was, he was just like you and I. In fact, let me say this. He married a girl named Sarah and tried to sell her off twice to his friends to keep from getting killed. That sounds like redneck. He had a crazy nephew named Lot who went out and ended up in a place called Sodom and he had to go get him out. That's redneck. And if that wasn't worse, he ended up sleeping with the maid and they had a baby out of wedlock. That's redneck. You don't do that type of stuff. But we think Abraham was so much more righteous than us. Oh, dude, man, he's jacked up. God comes to Abraham at a point in his life because his life is all displayed for us in the book of Genesis. And he comes to him at a point in his life and he looks at him and, and Abraham's probably like, oh man, God's gonna kill me, man. Look at all the stupid things I've done. Look at all the, and listen, this is even before Jesus. In fact, I think this may be one of the first visual acts of grace that we see in the scripture. 
It's just a visual. He finds Abraham, and in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, here's what he says. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. If I was God, I'd say, hey, Abraham, I'm going to blame you. Hey, God, I'm going to burden you. Hey, 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 Abraham, I'm going to burden you. I, I just want you to try to keep measuring up, bro. No, God looks at him and he says, hey, hey, I want to bless you. Sounds like grace to me. And then he goes on and in chapter 15, he enters this relationship with him called a covenant. And God even knew (laughs) Abraham couldn't keep the covenant, but God could. But in Genesis 15, verse six, listen to what it says. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. Shame game over. Over, right? It's no longer about my performance because I'm the righteousness of Christ. I don't speak to what's dead in my life. I speak to what's alive in my life through Jesus Christ because of the grace of God. And I either have all of it or I have none of it. Because anything that is of me is of self and God doesn't need more of me. I need more of him. But I wanna tell you, if that's true, the shame game's over. There's no more blame. I just wanna stay broken. No, you can't. If you're the righteousness of Christ, how can you stay broken when God says you're healed? Let's pray. Thank you so much for listening to this message. If you have made a decision for Christ or have any prayer request, please email us at hello at southcrest.tv. If you would like to join us in our Do You See What I See giving campaign, please check out our website at southcrest.church forward slash do you see.